Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining Pragmatic Podcast with Pipo. We've got an exciting show for you today. Um, exciting as in packed with information. Uh, we're going to be continuing our conversation from um, last week where we stopped um, talking uh, right when we got to adults with autism. So um, I have a special guest today with us who will be discussing um, that topic from her experience as a registered nurse who deals with uh, individuals, adults with autism. Um, her name is uh, Sosna McConnell, and she should be joining us shortly. Now, in the meantime, I would like to thank everyone for listening, sharing. Um, we've been, um, uh, you know, on this podcast for uh, several weeks now, and out of the seven continents, we have listeners in four of them. So many, many countries. And um, I truly do appreciate everyone for your support, your feedback, and uh, joining me every week and, um, you know, getting the, the message out. So as we wait uh, for our special guest, I would like to just touch up on a couple of uh, key things. Again, this is Autism Awareness Month. Um, and as we go through this month, uh, just talking about different different topics, but within the autism community. Uh, from safety, which I'll have another session about safety, uh, to different resources, um, the challenges one experiences um, just living with autism. So, you know, today I think will be a very critical part of this conversation. Uh, some of it may be very tough to hear. Um, again, our guest, uh, she's a registered nurse um, dealing with individuals, adults with autism, and she's going to share, you know, um, from costs to what to expect, um, what those centers really are like from the inside out um, and what you should do to prepare. So let me pause for a second, see if our guest has joined. Uh, Sosna, are you on? We may be having technical difficulties. Hello? All right, there you are. Sosna, thank you so much for joining. I appreciate your time. No problem. Thank you, people. Good afternoon, everybody. How are you guys? All right. So, All right. So, um, um, I think you may. I think you may. Two devices. Two devices. On, so you can mute one of them. Okay. Yeah. Mute. Can I back. All right. So, uh, Sosna, I I told our audience a little bit about you that you're a registered nurse, but um, let me pause and have you introduce yourself to us. And um, I was just mentioning to the uh, group that you deal with individuals with autism, adults with autism, and that we're gonna cover uh, many, many different topics. So if you would uh, tell us a little bit about your professional background. Yeah, sure. Thank you so much people, first of all, for giving me this opportunity. Yeah, uh, I'm actually a, a practitioner, a nurse practitioner. 
I've been a nurse for the last 10 years. Um, I've been working in the hospital for the last 10 years, uh, dealing with just day-to-day patient care, like bedside nurse. Um, I wasn't introduced to um, autism until recently, uh, which is two years ago when COVID hit. That's when I was needed in the center where most adult individuals live. Um, my hospital normally deal uh, just with like a regular patient day-to-day um, hospital, but in case these centers with people with autism or pers- um, developmental delay are needed, we were just going in and out. But this time, COVID came two years ago when the whole world was shutting down and these guys needed our help. And um, that's when my journey started for the better. I was introduced to this um, settings, uh, which are individuals who are 19 and above live. And people, as you can, you know, probably better than me about autism, these individuals are mostly routines and schedule. And when COVID hit, all the centers were shocked that they don't know what to do with their individuals. So then they were asking for help outside of the center because they don't have doctors, they don't have nurses, they don't have any help. So they don't know what to do. So they approached me saying, Sosna, hey, we need you in these centers, uh, which you've been going there like from time to time when there's needed, can you please go help out? Um, and I said, I, at first, to be honest, I was a little bit scared because this is going to be a day to day and um, I don't know the, the outcome, how I'm going to deal with these individuals. Um, and I said, okay, let me think about it and I'll get back to you. Five minutes later, I said, you know what, I'll go. So that's how my journey started working with autism, adult autism, uh, I should say. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, now, once you went to the center, uh, tell us a little bit about the centers, right? You deal with individuals that have, you know, different developmental delays or uh, and or um, is it specifically for autism or are there other, um, you know, long term care type of a facility and autism is as part of it? It's actually 80 um, percent of the individuals are autistic individuals. And this center are individuals that came from an institution that was here in Canada, like years ago, 25, 30 years ago. These individuals were misdiagnosed at that time because as you know, there was not much of awareness of autism. So they were put in this institution because they were different. They don't know what to do with them. So 20 years ago, they realized this center needs to be closed because these individuals shouldn't be put in this uh, condition because it was not a pretty condition. It was not for people to live in. So many, many organizations took some of these individuals that were put in this institution, basically was like, um, when you read a story about it, when you read their bio, how they were treated, how they were living, it was devastating. So most company um, took some of these individuals to this center that I work. And as these individuals get older, the place become available for other individuals to come in. So we have range between the age of 19, fresh out of high school, and people that still there that came from that institution. 
So there's different level of care there. Like they have, it's a huge um, center. So um, they put them in a different level, like in a different uh, age group. So it's uh, mostly autistic in some with developmental delay. Um, and some of them, like I said, because they come from this institution, they were misdiagnosed. They didn't even know what condition they have. So they were just put in this institution. That's when they had to come to the centers and get the evaluation, the assessment. And uh, so we have different type of um, individuals with uh, different um, syndromes. Okay, so in your case, right, um, as a nurse practitioner, you deal with the health side of it, not necessarily the mental health side of it, correct? Yes, at the beginning, that's where I used to go there for. Like, let's say somebody is on a G-tube, somebody needs an IV. We were just being sent there like once a week or whatever, because they don't have a regular doctor or they don't have nurses. They just have workers. But when I am going there fully is now when COVID hit. When COVID came about, these centers were shuttered. Like they don't know what to do with these individuals because most of them were, um, they were having health condition. They were having behavior issue. And some of the workers that work there, as you know, like the whole world was scared. They don't know what to do. So they kind of left some of the workers. They lost workers. And these individuals were able to go to the doctors, to their hospitals on their own before. Now everything closed down and you can't close these guys without no help, right? So that's when they came to ask for help. So we had to rescue basically their basic needs. So we were trained like while we were working, how to deal with them regarding their behavior or their um, the medical need that's what when we had to go on um, even though we didn't have any autism uh, study background because of the like as a nurse you are compassionate you are there to care you are there to support regardless if it's medically or mentally so we had that background so we were put in this um, situation where we were new and we were actually happy to to be there mm -hmm. and um it, it was challenging at the first two months, to be honest. But as I get along, uh, it, it's been it's been great. Like you, know, you learn as you go, right? Uh, and so the reason I ask uh, that is because it's fascinating to me, right? I'm trying to picture this facility where you have many patients. Um, you're trying to care for multiple things. Uh, what type of support do you have what type of support do they have do they have doctors um, mental health professionals uh security uh, tell me a little bit about the dynamics right what what tell me about the logistics that goes behind the scenes and the reason i ask that is because you're gonna have um people right families that are listening to us that may be considering such a uh, place. Um, so we're going to talk about the group homes versus nursing centers, so on and so forth. But tell me a little bit about the structure, right? Is there a doctor? Is there, um, um, you know, a mental uh, health uh, provider? Um, as I mentioned, security to ensure that uh, they don't harm themselves or harm staff or 
um, you know, elope right from the place. So what what does it look like in centers like that? The center like that is absolutely amazing, especially the place I work at, and I've been to another two places. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, they have all the care that they need there. They don't have doctors. They don't have nurses because these are not patients. They are not ill. They just have a disorder, right? So they do have a BT that comes in once in a week, or they do have workers that study behavior that works with them one-on-one. -on -one. What happened, why they needed nurses and doctors right now was because of the COVID. When the COVID hit, like the whole world was in a different um in, in a different place. So for these guys, you can imagine how hard it's going to be, right? So they discover, listen, we need nurses, we need doctors here. So they make sure they get that um, that help. So since there is no doctor, I was sent because I'm a nurse practitioner, I, I can prescribe a medication. There was another nurse, registered nurse, an RPN that was sent there. But we were just there for an extra support in case the behavior comes there's medication in place, but they do have workers. Before COVID, these guys don't need doctors. They don't need nurses because in the morning they wake up, they go to school. Some of them have the program they go to. Some of them have a job to go to. And some of them have community work, like volunteer they go to. They have so many activity. And for those that don't go anywhere else in that setting, they have so many programs they provide for them, like life skill teaching, they have um, people that do music, they do art and craft, they do puzzles. It's a busy, busy place. But when COVID hit, everything shut down. So these guys were routine. Like as you know, most autistic individuals are routine. When the routine broke down, the behavior changed. So that's when we were sent to help these individuals to deal with the medical aspect of it which is to control the behavior, for them to understand what's happening to the world. Listen, uh, John, today you're not gonna go for school. Today you're not gonna go for work. So that is hard. How do you explain this, what's happening to the world? And so most of them were having a behavior issues. So that's when we come in to uh, provide the medical help they need. But this place is, people is absolutely amazing for, everybody that lives in that um, in that uh, in that center because like they have um, trained professionals they have PTs they have exercise program they have so many things going for them so I really really um, advocate for people that have individuals who are autistic like you know we say here in Canada autism doesn't stop at the age five yes some of them they grow out of it and we have different um, range of autistic individuals. There is high functioning, there is total care. If they are high functioning, of course, we know they're gonna go to school, they're gonna go to work, they're gonna make productive of their life. But those that cannot, um, they cannot advance to the level where you want them to be, it's better to think what's, what's for my child. Once he turned 19, when the school is over, then what do I do, right? So you gotta have to think about where to put them, what to do with them, what's available for you out there. So that's why these centers are very, very, very important for, um, for people to find out which one is a good program for your loved one.
because when your child is young, you are okay, he's under your care. And for most of the time, he's at school or she's at school. Four o'clock, he comes home and he's with the family. But once the school is over, then what? So you gotta have to think about that. What's then when my son reaches or my daughter reaches a certain age, is there a place for them to go? And then again, I'm not talking about for all autistic individuals. These are for the high cases that really need the total care. So uh, it is, uh, it's something to think about for the family ahead of time before it's too late. Because, you know, I, I don't know how it works in the state. In Canada, the waiting list is ridiculous. You've been waiting forever to get um, centers like this, programs like this. So uh, it's something to put it on your calendar. Hey, by age this, I'm going to start looking for a place for my child to um, to grow, to to be productive, to learn something. Um, so I, I recommend the centers for everybody, and it is a very amazing centers. And security wise, we do have security, and most uh, individuals are individuals. Like everybody is different, right? Some of them do need two-on-one. -on -one. Some of them need one-on-one. -on -one. Some of them are independent. They go and they come as they please. Um, it depends on the centers you put them. But it's not a horrible place. It's a very comfortable, very relaxing. The atmosphere is um, amazing. Um, why I do like centers like that is the integration, the social life, the learning process they have, they have there. So your child is not just sitting at home um, doing nothing, you know. Thank you. And, um, you know, I'm glad you explained it in the manner that you did. So these centers, can they, uh, is it, you know, do they live there or are there individuals that come and go? Do they have visitation with their families? Um, or are these people in the uh, care of the state? So, uh, explain that a, a little bit. And if there is visitation, how does that work with their families? Do they have personal time? Are they monitored? Are they able to take them out? Um, how does that work? Oh, yes. Um, the visitation is uh, up to you. You can see your family as long as you want. Um, we do have monitors sometimes. It depends on the individual. If the individual is high behavioral, of course, the worker has to stay with that person while the family is there. And we have individuals that take them home. They will bring them after the weekend. And this is like a center that they live there. Some of them, their family put them. Some of them, the government, um, they were under the state. Uh, and some of them, they don't have a family. They do live there. And we have a respite section too. Like we, um, let's say you have a child at home and you want a weekend off, you want a break or you're going on vacation. So we have a respite center as well. Like you can bring uh, your um, your um, child or your loved one to stay there for a weekend, for a week. The, um, it's, um, it's, it's like being home, but not your own home. You know what I mean? <clears throat> and your room is your room. You can decorate it how you want it. You have your family pictures there. It's like your own home. It doesn't look like a hospital. It doesn't look like an institution. It looks like just your own home. Um, and it's your private room. You don't share it with anybody. It's your own room. It's like being home, but not your own home. So yeah, you can, um, visitation is available. Unfortunately, because we had the COVID going on, 
the visitation was restricted because of the horrible uh, virus that was going around. But now that that's lifted, these individuals are able to see their family again. They are happier and um, they look forward to see um, and go as they please. The family can take them out to the movies, to the restaurant, and then they can come back. So that's the kind of center that uh, that is. Yeah, and so for those, um, and again, as I mentioned, we're you know we're talking about you're stationed in Canada, uh, but we have listeners all over the world. Uh, as I mentioned uh, before, you joined. Uh, we've touched four continents uh, out of the seven. So you know to everyone, right? Uh, research within your own county, within your own city, state, um, and see what resources are available. But, you know, this in general, uh, even from the research that I've done, what we're talking about here is pretty standard, especially in the United States. So for those of you that are listening from the United States, this is going to give you a pretty good blueprint as far as what to expect, should that be an option for you. Um, it's not always an option uh, or a decision that you have to make, uh, but for those that have to make that decision and place your child um, with special needs in a center, um, this, you know, uh, what we're talking about today is definitely going to uh, help you make that decision. At least that's what we hope. So, so it's not, tell me a little bit about uh, you have individuals, a lot of them that you're talking about sound like they're very high functioning uh are able to care for themselves the majority of the time how about those that are on the other end of the spectrum that require a lot more supervision that require a lot more security if you will that's a very very big topic with me uh, so if they're living in a center where there are many many others uh, you may have some that are males some females even in in the high functioning community right um to make sure nothing inappropriate is happening, not just, um, you know, resident to resident, but also people and centers at times, even the elderly, right? This is uh, a sad fact, but it is something that we have to address. And I'm sure many families are concerned about. There is abuse that goes on, you know, not in your center per se, but, you know, generally in some kind of an institution, you hear about abuse. You hear about abuse. I think uh, even recently there was a nurse that was charged uh, with horrific crimes. So what does the facility do or what does your industry do to ensure things like this don't happen to those loved ones, those that are most vulnerable? Oh, yeah, that is a big question. And it is a concern for every company in my company have a policy and procedure that we follow in there's trainings and after trainings they do regarding abuse. And first and most, we teach these individuals about their rights and all the abuse that they, they need to report. Obviously some they are going to report because they are able to tell you and some they don't. So what this company, one, one thing I like about this company is what they do is like, Every shift that's switching, there is a body check that we do, regardless what time it is. If your shift is at 7 o'clock in the morning, whoever work overnight, you do a body check, full body check, because of this incident that they usually have. 
and you know people like some of these individuals can be aggressive and they do self-injury so we would mostly like if abuse happened they usually will say uh, it was self-injured he hit himself she hit himself things like that what's happening in the company so they had to put policy and procedure they had to put consequences for their uh, staff so to to at least minimize the abuse that goes around I've been there now strictly two years since COVID and I haven't had any incident of abuse to be honest but I, I can't say it didn't happen but because I see the report I have to sign off on it I haven't because of all the policy and the procedures they put um, on in place because abuse we can't tolerate abuse this company does not tolerate abuse and any other company shouldn't tolerate this abuse um, so yeah it is it is a concern and that's why there's a lot of um, education on that we do educate the individuals we show them videos after video what abuse means like in the level of understanding if they understand through pictures through movies through whatever it is we make sure they understand if they being abused financially physically sexually verbally they are aware of their rights and the staff get certified of the abuse training they have self-management training because they take there's this class they take called smt smg it's um in case the behavior is up happen with the individual how can you defend yourself as a worker right but you have to use those techniques that's been used in the training that you certify in order to use with these individuals if you go past the training then you'll be um it's on you there is consequences for that stuff that's um they will discipline them obviously i've heard stories where um there was a person that went to prison because uh, according to the staff they were using self-management they were protecting themselves but because they went beyond in on then the actual training itself it was considered as an abuse you can't restrain somebody without your training so uh, i think uh, this person got a prison time of three years or so um that i hear but this happened before i went to to work for this company but, but yeah there's a policy and procedure you have to follow you can't Put your hands on somebody you can abuse them mentally you can abuse them sexually financially because their worker deal with their financial aspect there too like so yeah abuse is a, a no no there's no tolerance that's good to hear and i'm sure it gives a peace of mind to some uh parents out there that may have these kind of questions and so we'll open it up for uh additional questions and to the audience if you do have questions you can type it on this live and uh we will answer or do our best to get you the answer um if not you can send uh questions uh to the pragmatic podcast with people facebook page you can use the messenger function there and we can try to get you the answer that you need now how about for those individuals that are not able to report that are not able to I, actually i have a two-part question uh someone that's not able to verbally report to you um and some injuries you may not be able to see uh you know just by looking at them right you're doing a body check so what do you have for those type of individuals or maybe you guys don't have 
you know, someone with that level of autism. But are there cameras? Are there any additional resources being put towards protecting that kind of an individual where they cannot comprehend enough to uh, be able to report and or verbalize what's happened to them? So are there cases like that, individuals like that, where they're nonverbal and you have concerns that they may not be able to report certain things to you? And if so, what do you do? We, we do actually have few individuals that are high, very high behavior issue, like no matter um, how many medication they are in, they just behavior. So this is again, before I came into the company, you see the reports such and such, injure himself, injure himself, injure himself, injure. So then the company, of course, they had to take a look at it. Like this individual is two to one. He has two staff for one. How is this happening? How is this? individual being injured all the time. So of course, um, the family come in handy. Like it's so important for family to be so involved in their child life. So the family, of course, as soon as somebody is injured, we have to put an, um, an IR incident report. So we have to call the family, uh, your son, your daughter, this happened to them. So the family are the one, your eyes, your family are the one that gives you information because although they live there, the family knows them better, right? So you get the information from the family. <clears throat> so I had this case, this individual, like I came in every day, I get an incident report. So you talk to the family, they're like, no, 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 no. My son doesn't do that. When he hit himself, this is where he hits. So they, they know better. So then when the company put one and two together, they said, okay, you know what? We're gonna put a camera and before that, camera were not allowed because of the privacy. But if the family consent to it, if the family asks, I need a camera in my son's and my daughter's room because too much incident is happening. I need to know. So we have at least six, I would say, they have a camera in their room. The only place that don't have a camera is the washroom. But as soon as you walk into their room, the hallways everywhere, it has a camera. Um, should I say the incident reduced? Yes, the incident has reduced, but the staff are doing a great job. I, I don't want to say the staff are not doing a great job, but what's ha what was happening was when the individual mis uh, I shouldn't say misbehave when the indi individual have a behavior issue, instead of the staff using their skills, their SMG training, and these individuals they were being a little bit aggressive than they should. So when they put this camera, of course the staff will say, listen, I gotta use my self defense um, training. And it kind of reduced. So we do have camera when the companies or the workers or the nurses or whatever see consistency, like too much is happening. Then um, if there's too much incident report, the government comes in too. Um, the ministry is really good. I know in America, the system is not as good as here. I'm sorry to say that people, but the government is on top of everything in Canada. So if I call ministry if they found more than two incidents in one individual within a week they are at my door the next day and i've been questioned what was happening what time what did you do so we don't want the ministry every day at the center right so we gotta have to clean up the mess so again training 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 education 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 towards the workers so that's how they've been able to kind of um 
keep um, everybody safe because uh, the government is on it, the management is on it, uh, the family is on it. So it's it's a better way to deal to deal with it now. Thank you. I appreciate that. And the second part of my question was how are and you answered a, a part of it for me uh, already, but. How is the family involved and what what recourse does the family have right to follow up or if they're at home, how do they check on their loved ones if they cannot come and get them? Um, is there a way for them to uh, just call and ask or are there you know live feeds if they did request a camera? How can they keep an eye on their loved ones or how do they get updates uh, uh, about their loved ones? Oh, um there, it's always open communication. They are always um, welcome to call anytime they want to speak to their loved ones. They are welcome to speak to their workers. And with our guys now, like the young ones that just finished high school, they are so into technology. They are better than me. I tell you people, I don't know what to press. These guys know how to, to use all the technology. So they are on their iPad, talking to their brothers, talking to their moms, showing them what they're doing. So Technology comes in handy right now to connect with the family, especially the last two years that they were not able to come as they please or they're not able to go see them. So they had Zoom meetings. They have FaceTime. They are always on their um, gadget uh, to talk to the family. And those that don't have this um, technology, the company provides for them because they have funding. The funding is right there for them. They need to use it. So wherever is necessary, we buy things for them like that. The company does buy things um, that they need to connect uh, with the family. So there is always communication. And it's the most important thing is to be able to talk to the family, not only for the loved ones and for us too, to get more information um, uh, about their, their guys, especially the ones that just came from high school, the younger the 19, the 22 years old, they are high functioning. They can tell you a story. They can do a lot of things. So they could, the ones that came from this institution that I'm telling you about, they are older, right? They are more over 40, over 50. Some of them don't have a family. So we, the workers there are actually their family. So they kind of talk with them than anybody. Mm, you know, that, Talks at my heart, right? Those that don't have families that visit them and you have to take on that role of a family as much as you can. So uh, my heart definitely goes out to them. Um, and everything that you guys there is uh, very important. Um, and I thank you for the service you provide, although it's your profession. Um, this is, and, and I know you told me privately, and I know you're going to share it here, but I think it's even touched you to the point where you're even looking to learn more about autism and be even more involved, right? Oh, yeah. People, my world changed the last two years. You know, the whole world changed for, for worse. For me, it turned into adventure. I study, I become a practitioner. It was great to be a nurse. Like, you know, I go in, I pop pills, I do injection assessment, data, this and this. When I was sent to the center, the first two weeks, like I said, it was scary. I'm like, oh my God, what am I going to do? I don't know um, what to do here. Because 
um, they scare you. Like once you start um, going in, it's all about behavior, behavior. Be careful. Somebody's going to hurt you. Somebody's going to hurt you. And uh, I walk in. I said, no, I could do this. I could do this. I know it's not nursing. It's not bed um, like normally like uh, as a nurse. You're either in ICU, you're either in eMERGE, dealing with day-to-day patients. But these are like individuals, like people that are not ill, they just have a condition. So how do I communicate with them? So my first person I met, he looked at me and he said, don't be scared. All I'm going to do is pinch you. I said, oh, my God. <laughs> I said, okay, uh, I could do this. I just love it. To the, I, can't, I can't see myself doing anything but this. I love what I do. I love nursing, but as even I went and registered myself to become a behavioral therapist, I'm doing that online. I, I want to work with these guys. I want to study their brain. I want to learn more. What is it? Why are they functioning like this? Why, why are they doing this? Why is this happening? They are just fascinating. I just love working with them. They challenge me. They teach me the stuff that I don't know. I'll tell you a story, people. Um, a few weeks ago, one of them had a birthday. The grandma bring him um, a gift of um, puzzles. And he, he loves puzzles. But when he does puzzle, he doesn't do puzzle less than 2,000 pieces. I'm talking about 2,000 pieces. I can't even do five puzzles. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> he came. He says, guess what I have for you, Sasna? I said, what? I have um, puzzles that my grandmother gave me. I said, oh, but that's for you. He says, no, my grandma is old. She only gave me 50. It has only 50 in them. But I think you can do it within a year. (laughs) (laughs) He's absolutely correct because I can't put one in one puzzle. This guy sits there. He does 2,000 puzzles within an hour. And he makes it like He decorated his room with it. So he was willing to give me a 50 puzzles, like a 50. He says, you can even finish it in a year. I'll give you a year. And I know I'm not going to finish it in a year. I wouldn't even put it. I wouldn't even try. Hmm. So as I go along, like I'm learning from these guys. They are so compassionate. They are so honest. They just tell you as it is. Who does that? I don't do that. Like we are just there to please people, right? We say the right things all the time. So I don't hurt people's feelings. I should tell them this and this. These guys are just honest, the most humble individuals that I have ever met. And it's just changed my whole, my whole two years. It's been great. Like, I can't wait to go to work. I do 12-hour shift throughout COVID. And it was just like that. The time go by fast. Yeah, there are days that I lock myself in my office and I say, oh, my God, I need a break because the constant um, noises, the uh, the, uh, the repetitive words that I hear, but it's been amazing, people. Like, uh, I, I can't wait to finish my my uh, my studying to be able just to concentrate on autism, then going back to work in the hospital and emerge, you know. You know, and I, yeah. I commend you for that, and I think you're approaching it the right way. Sometimes um, our careers are just jobs, and at times you find a passion within your job. And I think that's what you found indirectly and it's leading you to a different path. And for those that you take care of, they're very fortunate to have someone like you because it's that 
it's not the knowledge that helps them. It's the passion. Uh, without the passion, um, it's just another job and they're just another case. But where you're coming in and you have this newfound love, if you will, you know, it's going to benefit them. And believe it or not, it's going to benefit you more than uh, you can ever imagine because it's very fulfilling. Uh, you're helping someone that's completely um, vulnerable. You know, they're they're there to, needing you to guide them, you know, regardless of what level of autism they have, there is a need, right, for some kind of support. And where you have that passion, I think you're going to do an awesome job. I think you're doing an awesome job. So I commend you. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very happy that you're continuing uh, down that path. Um, now, let's talk about some of the, you know, resources. How, you know, do these families pay for it? I think in Canada, there may be some uh, government assistance. Um, do you have to, uh, is it a lengthy process? Um, and, you know, tell walk us through as much of it as possible. You know, that I know it's a little bit outside of your scope, right? You're on the medical side versus the uh, social worker side, right? But being there, I'm sure you, you know, hear and learn about, you know, all of these different types of funding. Um, and again, for the listeners, uh, she's based out of Canada, so this may be different uh, wherever you are, but this will give us a good idea. So can you talk a little bit about the resources, the funding, uh, the process, the wait list, uh, how many centers there may be around, uh, and what are the alternatives to that? Can you provide the same type of services at home? Yes. The process is not easy, although the fund is there. Like, we better off in Canada than we are in the States in any uh, health-related um, concern. I, I think so. I don't know. There is a lot of funding, but how do you get it? Where do you talk? Who do you talk to? How do you start? That's the question. The first thing you need to do is, like, while you when you discover your loved one have autism, find out what the funding is. The funding is out there, but people don't know where to go who to ask, how to look for it. And then when your child is younger, yes, because he's still or she is still in your care, the fund is not as much. You just get the basic funding because your child is going to school. After school, he's coming home. So the um, government assume, hey, this is your child. He lives at home. What funding do you need? They don't understand you need the speech therapist. You need the behavioral therapist. You need... Um, a lot of activity to keep this um, your child busy. There is a lot of program that you need to do. So you need to talk to um, your, a social worker at the school. You start at, at school. My child have autism. I need funding. So they guide you through that. But once you finish high school, there is a place um, that you go look for it. It's called Passport Funding. This passport funding actually was just introduced in Canada a few years ago. I'm going to say about six, seven years ago. It is money that is for the individual, only for the luxury, for the activity you need for your loved ones. So you have that. And if you decide to put your child to the center, you have to think way ahead before this uh, person finish high school because the wait list 
is forever. That's where there's a problem in the system. There is not enough places to put, um, to send your child to. Because after high school, there's day programs that you can put them to learn, um, to learn life skills, life skills, easy things that they can do. It's either art, music, or whatever the, your child is interested to. To get to that, the waiting list is forever because the centers they have is not as much. They should have more than what they have. So what they give you, the alternative is leave them at home. We'll send you a worker at your house. No, that's not good enough because these individuals need to get out. They need the social life. They need um, com to go out in the community just like me and you. So that's what the problem is anywhere you go here in Canada. The centers are not enough. But now, um, since COVID hit, the government realized, hey, we did. We have to change. The system needs to change because they realized a lot of people, a lot of people were in a big problem throughout the whole two years because the family stayed home, the child stayed home. There was a lot of um, uh, problem at the house because you can't able to take care of your child. They don't have enough places to go to. So what some family did was they leave the child somewhere, let's say at a coffee shop, and the government take over, the kids take over the, the custody. So then they find a place for you. So a lot of family were forced to do that, which is so sad. I don't want to leave my child at the coffee shop so a government can take over and take a custody in order for them to find a place. Why can't they give me the place when I apply for it? So a lot of family here are forced to just leave their child wherever, but they are watching from the back background, of course, to see if somebody can take that child and put them in um, centers like this or in school or in a day program. Then the family at once, they, the government take over they find them a place the family get involved as well. But there is a lot of funding, but the waiting list is longer. And I hope they come up with a, a little bit better solution for the family than, than anything. But, well, that, yeah. that is heartbreaking to hear uh, that they would leave a loved one in a coffee shop just to try to get them help. Um, just tragic. I mean, I, I can't even imagine, you know, what, uh, that individual is going through, the family is going through just to seek that kind of assistance. But if they did take that action um, and the government takes, you know, this individual that's needing help, right, and places them in a center, does the family have any contact moving forward? Or is it like, oh, if we find that you abandoned this person, you're going to go to jail? What happens then? I I was just dealing with that um, scenario about like um, six months ago. A mother, she was desperate. She didn't know what to do. So she left um, her child just like that. That's why I brought that example. And the government took over and they took custody of the child. But mind you, the government doesn't want to do anything. So of course, they're going to allow the family. The mother didn't go to jail. There was nothing. She was desperate. But she was watching from the background. She had a worker that used to come to the house to take care of her child, and that worker was at the coffee shop pretending that they don't know she didn't she didn't know this um this um this uh, child. Uh, he was not a child actually. He was 19 years old. He's a big big man, and they took over. Yeah, the mother find out that he was already in a government um, hand, 
she went in. She said, this is what I want for my child. I need a space for him. You couldn't find a place. So here I am. Once, now that I left them at the coffee shop, you, you were able to find them a place. I've been on waiting list for six years. So she had to go to court for it. Of course, she won her case. So she's involved with her, her child's life. She's the one who signed off on all the medical papers that I need her to sign. The government has nothing to do with it, but at least it gave her that option for her son to be able to put in that um, in that, in that uh, center. So yeah, they do have the right. Wow. Um, so, you know, again, to all the listeners that are listening live and that uh, that can listen, you know, during the replay, the reason we're sharing these stories is to show you what a family, not just an individual with autism, but the whole family goes through and that this doesn't end at, you know, age 18. This doesn't end at age 21, 25. It's a lifelong condition and you have to have resources. Um, the waiting list, if there are any resources, the waiting list is unbelievable. Uh, probably I've heard uh, in the United States, for example, uh, the VA, uh, Veterans Administration, I hear their long list, but nothing that's this long. However, in the autism community, I've heard from many people, many states, and now you're hearing it from Canada. Uh, I'm in America. Uh, Sosna's in uh, Canada. You always hear about years worth of wait just to get assistance for this human being. So, you know, I urge you, you know, even if you don't have anyone in your family that has, has autism, even if you don't know anyone that has autism, be an advocate, speak up, talk to your uh, local politicians. That's where it starts. Uh, talk to school districts. They can't do anything without the local politicians. Talk to state politicians, federal politicians, write letters, be an advocate because these are human beings that are probably the most vulnerable. And even when they get this so-called assistance, as Sosna kind of touched up on a previous center uh, where she took over those cases, a previous center was actually shut down because of the um, ill treatment, if you will, um, of these human beings. Um, if they live in deplorable conditions and there's no one to follow up on. Uh, these are horrific. This is an epidemic that no one is really paying attention to. You may hear about it in the month of April in the United States or April 2nd on Autism Awareness Day, but families live with this every day for years, decades. And if you are a family that's, you know, been impacted, I urge you start making those financial plans for your loved one, even long after you're gone. Reason being is if you put pencil to paper and start adding up the amount of money you'll need to be able to take care of your loved one, we're talking seven figures at best. So start making those plans. If you do have government assistance, ask about what happens beyond a certain age 
what happens when you're no longer around. Also power of attorneys. Um, depending on, again, what the state law is or, you know, the laws in your country that you're in, um, you have to be, once the child is of age, right, they become an adult. So make sure that you're involved and you're 10 steps ahead of this so that way you're able to make decisions for your loved one in the event that they cannot. Um, so I really thank you, Sosna, for sharing this with us because it gives us insight, right, that this condition is lifelong and what you see from behind the scenes, right? You have patients that are 40 and 50 years old that don't have families to visit them anymore. And as a child with autism becomes an adult, that adult could be a 50-year-old person, 60-year-old person still alive, and the parents are no longer, and they may not have any siblings or any visitors. So it really helps us, you know, the whole thing about awareness is, you know, being aware of everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And uh, with that, you know, I want to throw the mic uh, back at you to talk about what do you like? I, I know you talked about what you like about your job, but if you had to say pros and cons, right, what are the pros for you know, planning for a center. Uh, I love the fact that you have respite care in your facility as well. I never really heard that. Uh, maybe it's a Canada thing, but I hadn't heard about it. I'll look into it and uh, see if I can share it with some families that may uh, uh, have a need for it. But And then what are the cons, right? What are the things that you dislike about it? Okay. Um Yes, I'm all for the centers, right? Because once your child is 19, and how old are you? You're getting older as well, right? It's going to be harder for you to take care of your your loved ones. So we need the centers like that. While your child is with you and you're still able to take care of them, then there is no need to. But you have to think about, okay, my child is going to get older. While he's getting older, I'm going to get older too. How am I going to be able to manage myself and um, take care of another person? So the center comes in handy at that time. And also the centers helps develop like the developmental of the individual, like to feel like I'm me, like I'm, I'm around people, I'm doing things, I'm productive. You are the integration to the, the society. Like we can't just keep you locked up. You are a human being just like me and you. You are able to go shopping just like me and you. You are able to go to music. You are able to go to everything. So why not? You need, so these centers, you have to research, first of all, before you put your child to any center, what kind of activity they have. What is their options? What do they do? Is it a good place for my child? Is it a good place for my loved ones? Once you have all that, yes, it's a great idea. So just to feel like you're living because they're just like me and you like you should see the things they do like I can't do half of the things these guys do honest to God like I'm not half of the things they do I cannot do I can't do and you can you can you can you consider me like a normal person no I can't I mentally cannot do half of the things these guys do they have potential there's a lot of potential for learning but is this center okay with that teaching method 
So that's what you have to you have to think about. This center that you're putting into is it just like a daycare? You're just putting a child there to just play around, or this is a center that have things for my son's interest, things that my son can learn, things my son can do. Can can he learn new skills? Those are the things that you have to consider about the con. Uh, the pro the problems is that the only bad thing I see about the center is the separation of the family. You know, because our guys are mostly routines. Routine is very important. So you staying at home with your family. You know what you do in the morning. You know what you do in the afternoon. The love is at home. So to put someone to the center, that separation time, that process, that thought process is going to be harder. You know, for the for an autistic individual because they can't reason why this is happening to me, right? So it's going to take a lot of um, encouragement, a lot of teaching, a lot of patience for the family and for the individual. So that's the, the bad side of it is just the separation of the family from the norm you're going to, to a strange place. So it's going to be hard. And um, our guys can't do too well to change. It's, uh, routine is very important. I call them my guys because the girls, the boys, they are guys to me. So I'm sorry, people, if I keep saying my guys. It's just... No, no. No, I actually, I, I love the fact that you make it personal, right? You call them my guys. You know, that just shows the level of care you have. You know, it's not just a job for you. So, uh, no, believe me, I really understand that, um, and I appreciate it. Um, so besides, you know, the fact that you know the centers are great, uh, they're uh, they're a resource. Um, is there anything you would give? Is is there any advice you know as far as what people should expect, um, what people should do to prepare for that transition when and if it's necessary? Yes, yeah, so you you gotta do your research. You gotta think ahead of time. Give yourself years because, like I said, the waiting list is forever. So you gotta think. I know like I'm a mother, as a mother, I don't want my child to go anywhere, right? It's hard, but you gotta think like ahead of time, like you prepare ahead of time, what is good for my child? What is the best setting for my child? What am I gonna do with my child? So the best advice for me is once, you know, the capability, the, the level of your um, loved ones um, to progress, when you know that time, you, you, then that's when you decide. If if you know your child cannot go beyond high school, then you're going to have to think while he's still in grade nine. Okay. The behavioral therapist, the doctors, the psychologist, they're telling me my child have autism. He also might have um, developmental delay. Normally it's associated with that. So he's not going to be able to go to college, to university. So what do I do now? So that's when you start thinking, Okay, once my child reached 19, what is the option for him? I got to find research. There is help groups. There is um, organization you can, you can go to. What do you need to do? Do I, still my, do I still keep my child at home and send him to a day program? Or I need to find him a place to go for the centers? So you got to make a decision ahead of time before it's too late and you can't. Just for the better of your child. It's not so much for you anymore. It's for the better of your child because you don't want 
your child to just sit home and do nothing after they finish high school. You want them to be able to be productive, to go learn new things, to be able to do things. There is so much improvement. It's on you. It's on the parents because you already did so much. And I know it's a lot of work, a lot of stress, a lot of money. You spend a lot of money, but yet you still have work to do because this is just not, it's not an easy road, but there is always a light at the end of the tunnel. If you think ahead of time, you make a plan for your child, then you should be okay. So just make a plan ahead of time instead of waiting until the last minute. Well said. Well said. And, um, you know, I really thank you for, you know, all the information that you shared with us, your expertise from a professional and a personal uh, level. Uh, I wish you the best of luck in your uh, new uh, potential career as a behavioral therapist. And my apologies earlier when I was introducing you, I introduced you as a registered nurse, but you're a nurse practitioner, correct? I just want to make sure I, ha I captured your profession correctly. Um, so again, you know, great job on all that you've done on this presentation. Um, I'm going to publish this so that way people can refer back to it and get uh, your wisdom. And um, I thank you for your time. And anytime you want to come back and share more uh, information with us, uh, please do so. And we will definitely keep in touch. And if there are any questions that come after the show, I'll be sure to engage you so that way we can answer our audience um, in a timely manner. Yes, no problem, people. And thank you so, so much for taking your time to talk about this, people. This means a lot to me, a lot to me. Not only because it's a Autism Awareness Month, it's just I fall in love with my guys. Where was I? Like, all this time. I'm telling you, like, it's been an eye-opening. And I just wanted to thank you so, so much for taking this topic so seriously. We need more people like you. We need to advocate. The more we do this, the more people are aware of, and the more people will get help, and the more people know what to do. Because the unknown is the fear. Most of, for example, our people, they don't know where to go for help, right? Yeah. They don't know who yeah. to talk to. But the more show you do like this, people, the more people will take action. They will know where to search, where to go. They're not going to be scared of autism. Autism is not scary. We are scary. I'm scary. Autism is the, oh, I, I just do not have a word with it. It is different, but it's doable. It's understandable. It's love. It is exciting. It's a new world. And as we sing autism more and more now, I hope there's going to be more and more awareness and more and more help more and more funding for them and like you said everybody whatever state you live in talk to your municipality i'm always on on their blog here like you know we need more funding for autism like i'm advocating as much as i can and everybody should do their part so our guys and everybody guys can get help what they need because there's potential like these guys can do so much things it's just the funding and the resources out there, how do we find them? What do we need to get? And um, thank you so much for your time. And I really appreciate it. And thanks to your guests for listening as well. Thank you um, yeah. again. And uh, to, to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us. Until next time, I wish you all a great evening. And thank you, Sosna. We'll talk.